so now it's a matter of us pulling it all together to light the whole joint and, and putting on what I think will be a brilliant showcase for the sport. Yeah, we'll be honest with ourselves next week, as usual, and say, OK, it's a stonking result, but what could we have done better? Finding that passion for racing again. You know, stop looking at it like my job and, and go back to just doing it because I love racing cars and I love competing and that's really what's changed this year. Hi everyone, welcome to Inside Supercars. Shane Van Gisbergen from the Red Bull Holden Racing Team here. Welcome to Inside Supercars. Tony Whitlock and Craig Gravel. Uh, welcome to our 2019 post-Australian Grand Prix show. We're looking this week at, at round two of the Virgin Australia Supercars Championship. Craig, it was uh, a, an event that you uh, looked at from afar. Was it... Uh, Slightly more interesting from your distance than it was from mine. Interesting things occurring, but it wasn't captivating. Many people would know I'm not a huge fan of the Albert Park layout for the supercars. I'm not a real big fan of it for the Formula One either. So there was, as I said, many things occurring. Certainly uh, in the steward's office, there was plenty occurring, but um, I thought... The racing, with the exception of Chas Mostert's amazing drive-through in the first race, it was lacklustre. It was indeed, and that was great to see. Um, to have made comment to Tim Edwards, the head of uh, Tickford, that uh, it was about time Chas stepped up, and by crikey did he step up. He showed that uh, the speed that he had in Adelaide, but didn't uh, get to really uh, put on the table because of uh, various things that happened, but all the Mustangs, whether they were in the uh, colours of uh, Tickford or DJR Team Penske, they were all fast. And uh, as a result, that there's uh, some questions being uh, raised and the tests being have been done on uh, many of the cars, done uh, centre of gravity testing, suggestions that uh, they've done too good a job on the Mustang. Well, interestingly, I think you made mention to me and uh, I was aware that the uh, heavyweight mufflers being used on the, particularly on the Penske cars, weighing as much as uh, 20 kilos more than the uh, system Mustangs are wearing, that measuring it at 25, were actually on the Falcons last year. So that's not a new uh, development. It's something they've carried over. But some good thinking. There are no minimum or maximum weights for mufflers. Uh, but uh, question marks about uh, maybe. They're just both those teams are doing a better job on the new linear spring setup. So it's certainly one that's been raised. You've had some conversations, I understand. Look, I've tried to do a bit of an investigation on uh, the centre of gravity. It was, it was in fact um, flagged with us at um, at Adelaide Five Hundred that the aero was as even as they've ever seen it between the cars. It was the ballast that was the difference. And you could certainly see it. We mentioned it. Uh, Peter Norton talked about it, his observations in pit lane uh, after the Clipsal 500. Uh, sorry, the uh, Adelaide 500, Superloop 500. We'll get the sponsor right eventually. And it has become more and more apparent that because you, there's certain restrictions on where you can carry ballast in supercars, if you can make the top of the car lighter and the bottom of the car heavier by construction then you are going to have an advantage. Now, uh, I've done centre of gravity tests uh, when I was working in America. I 
thought it was pretty agricultural, but um, talking to people, they're still done exactly the same way. You put the car on four scales, you get the measurements, you have the uh, circumference of the, uh, you know, not the circumference, you have the diameter of the wheels. Um, you then raise the car up to um, an established height, normally on a, a block where you put it down and then you measure the front of the car once again. And that transfer in weight when you put it through a interesting calculation and you can do the calculations a number of different ways um, which will come out with the location of the center of gravity um, some people say it's not going to prove much other people think it'll be the pantsy and cure of why the uh, mustangs at the moment are so dominant i i think every time we get a new car and every time we get in let's forget about the car shape every time you get a new chassis the engineers who are designing it work out a few of the limitations of the previous one and then eliminate them from the next one. What we have here is we have a body change and new chassis, particularly on the Penske, DJR Team Penske cars. And as you would naturally expect, they are going to find areas where they can improve things. This has happened. Um, I'll be very interested to see. But when I heard about the 25 kilos or whatever it was, the actual weight of that muffler, I've just gone, a brilliant idea. There's not too many things lower. And I think I even sent you the text message. There's not too many things lower than a muffler. And that's where you want your weight to give you the best stability and balance of the car. Look, interestingly that uh, a number of other teams with the ZB Commodore, certainly uh, the Erebus team are, are sort of where they uh, were last year. Maybe not quite got the points on the scoreboard, but certainly both uh, Anton and Dave Reynolds are showing the speed they had late last year. But you've had the Brad Jones team. Their two cars uh, particularly have stepped up, and they're now both in the top ten, which has been quite some years since that's happened, really. Um, and uh, while Walkinshaws weren't showing great speed, they showed some more consistency over this weekend. So they, as, a, as two two-car teams both certainly showed far more than the Red Bull Holden Racing Team were. Um, Shane had... And interestingly too, Tony, that these cars, the Walkinshaw cars and Brad Jones cars, are traditionally better at Adelaide than they are at Albert Park, yet they had their better result at Albert Park because of, um, because of circumstance, I think is the, the safest way of saying it. Um, it... It'll it'll work itself out, I'm sure. Uh, Simmons Plains is always a track that um, not only Brad Jones racing, but Triple Eight has been extremely good at. That's the next one on the championship. Let's uh, reassess things after that. Yeah, indeed. Um, Look, it's uh, Shane had an absolute shocker all weekend. Engines, wheels, whatever it was. But one of the things that did become quite apparent was he just didn't have the speed. He certainly... uh, uh, was easy prey when a number of drivers were going through and they got past him. And that was before he actually had, had the wheel or the end problems. Um, he just didn't look Shane Van Gisbergen as we know him. Um, it, it was uh, interesting to see also how well um, that uh, Chaz was able to, to use his car and use it in all races. Um, there was that bizarre situation um, on the Saturday when uh, the two um, leading qualifiers 
uh, came together. Um, you know, a mix-up, uh, enormous damage done. I saw both those cars. Um, you know, the left uh, left front of uh, Cam's car and the right rear of uh, Scotty McLaughlin's car. You know, both heavily damaged. Many suspension parts had to be replaced, uh, and that was just a bizarre one. Um, but you know, it it. Um, there were many incidents over the weekend that were not really should be part of racing. I mean, for instance, the Stanaway um, incident with Lee Holdsworth, um, really unfortunate, um, and, and and certainly, you know, the degree of penalty, you know, obviously the penalty was given, uh, it can't be taken back, and so they just get on with things. You know, for the second year in a row, Richie is finding himself the centre of the controversy he would not like to be part of. And he's still not showing the speed, nor, unfortunately, is his teammate, really. They're both back there in the pack. The Kelly cars are not looking that uh, terrific either. Andre, I think, ended up being the highest placed uh, across them for the weekend. He's in the points. You know, there were penalties for uh, unsafe release in pit lanes and, you know, just a bunch of things. It's just not a good look. But uh, it was interesting to go and talk to some people. Um, we uh, uh, had a terrific conversation with Nick Ryan, which uh, gave us a far greater insight into the job that uh, Kelly Racing are having to do this year. That's one of the major things on the, the topic uh, of conversations for this week. The other one was um, I, I was able to get to Chaz, and he was certainly buoyed well. He, look, he didn't sound or look as bad as... It's been suggested he was. He's, he was appreciating the shorter races because he had some sort of flu uh, or some sort of illness that was affecting him. It didn't appear to be on track that it was affecting him, but maybe uh, maybe he, he felt it just in himself. So with Chaz Master, moments after you've wrapped up your very first Larry Perkins trophy. Yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, Larry's been a legend of our sport, not only as a driver, but as an engineer as well. I could be telling everyone else, you know, the amazing the days when everyone still went to single wheel nuts and he was still running five studs uh, because of his theory. If a couple come off, they'll stay on or whatever they were. So awesome to, to get the Larry Perkins trophy. I mean, it was an honour to have him here too. I know he's been crooked to lead up to this. So yep. it means a lot that he uh, yeah came came to do it. So, yeah, what a legend of our sport. And, yeah, super wrap for the guys at Super Cheap Auto and, and Tickford Racing. It's um, fantastic to get a win this weekend and, and get some good championship points. And you didn't nail your start, but it was better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a bit learning probably a bit about this weekend, but uh, yeah, the race was won and lost at the first corner. Just got yep. shuffled a little bit wide, and um, yeah, back behind Jamie again. But every time you get to race Jamie, you learn something new, how to be aggressive and attack. And anytime you can get past him, is um, you know, I think a pat on the back. He's probably one of the hardest races out there. So enjoyed enjoyed racing hard, and looking forward to. Um, Tasmania, see if we, we, we kind of had some ups and downs in the years past there, so see if we can um, kind of keep the form going. And your weekend started pretty well when you came from 22nd to 5th, so you obviously felt you had speed in the car. Yeah, I think we were a lot different than where we were kind of mid last year and keep going on this path to keep trying to make the car better and better. And I think even this weekend highlights a couple of little areas that we can still keep improving on, so... Um, yeah, lacked, lacked probably a little bit to Scotty, but it was good to try and keep him honest out there and push him along. Our cars, I think, um, compared to the whole field, our teammates and all, I think we really got our setup dialed in both our cars this weekend, and that really showed the pace. Which is an example of uh, getting actually well tuned up to the, going back to the single spring. Yeah, for sure. I, I believe we kind of were one of the last teams to actually run linear back in 2017. We were running linear for most of the year, so 
Um, yeah, a lot of other guys have been probably on trap springs for many more years than that. So saying that, I think, um, you know, we've worked, pretty, like I said, worked pretty hard on our cars and I think that showed this weekend. But, I mean, you look at previous years past, I mean, you've had triple eight cars come from 22nd back to 5th, if not a podium before. So it's kind of... I mean, a bit of a shock to see another team do that for once, so it was kind of fantastic to, to be on the, the right end of that for once. Um, and I see that your, your old uh, lucky charm, uh, James, is in the garage. James Moffat? Yeah. yeah, James popped down, obviously, being a Melbourne round. It's good to see the co-driver come out and, and show some enthusiasm. He's a great bloke. He also sh- puts a bit, a fair bit of insight into our team as well from other different p- uh, places he's been at, so... It's always a bit of a laugh to have around too, kind of like an extended family when we go on from round to round throughout the year, so uh, it was great for him to, to find the find the time to get down. He'll come down to Tassie for a run there? Yeah, for sure, obviously, co-driver practice session. It gets, I think, each year it gets more and more important now. you basically got two main drivers in the seats and the, race, the Enduros, where you used to run around and look after the cars for the last 20 laps, are completely gone now. They've all turned into 1,000-kilometre sprint races, 500-kilometre Sprint race in Gold Coast where it bounced across the curves. I mean, yeah, it's just a, a massive sprint race. So you need two well-credentialed drivers, and, and that's the only way you get results these days. All right. Now, before Tassie, you've only got two weekends off. Um, are either of those you going anywhere else to drive? Yeah, I'm away. Um, so i got next weekend at home, but then straight off to Laguna Seca for another round of the ICGT, which will be my last GT outing for the year, possibly. Um, so, yeah, we'll get to drive another car before we get to Tassie, and then... Um, try and get back into supercar momentum and um, hopefully that driving a GT car doesn't throw me out of sync too much. Now, you're relatively young compared to me. Have you actually looked up Zanardi's pass of the century at Laguna Seca? Uh, actually, I did. I, I saw more, what more surprised me at Laguna Seca was the after the race antics that one year when he just lost the championship. So, uh, I mean, you know, he's, he's an absolute legend. Obviously, he was a fantastic driver with him earlier in the year and um, yeah, hopefully I get to see him around and drive with him again at some time. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, well, that drive of the century goes back in the days of... Uh, I can't remember who the sponsor, primary sponsor was, driving the Chip Ganassi. And uh, it certainly was one of those drives. It was like Shane Ward's ball of the century, you know, when he dived down the inside there. It was quite magnificent. So yeah. enjoy uh, Laguna Seca. Look forward to hearing uh, after you come back. Thank you. Cheers. Were there any other comments about you wanted to make about the uh, overall race before we get to the interviews? Interesting that we should also consider that, remember, Triple Eight, I don't think, built any new Mustang chassis, if you like. They just reshelled the Falcons. And yet, Mostert had tremendous speed. And at Adelaide, uh, there was a number of the Tickford cars that had good performances. So it's. It's it's not just a case of Penske's doing something wrong necessarily because Tickford, you know, they couldn't find their way out of the pit lane last year and yet this year they seem to be performing much, much better. They, they were one of, one of the last teams to go across to the dual springs. They were far more using the single springs through much of last year. And it's been suggested that... Uh, the problem that Triple Eight may be having, and maybe to a less degree Walkinshaws, um, is that uh, they haven't converted back to the linear springs as, as well as uh, both DJR Team Penske and Tickford have. It's an interesting thought. I agree, and there's been about a hundred changes this year on the cars, and uh, there's things that can make you go faster, and there's things that can make you go slower. 
And likewise, your competitor faster and, and you slower. And I think we've just happened to hit a combination that is working for one and not for the other. Yeah. Yeah, certainly if we think back that um, the uh, Ford teams after... Um, Ford and, and, and uh, Nissan team last year after the debut of the ZB were very busy making panels, weren't they? Because um, it was an avenue that Triple Eight uh, had explored and the other ZB teams had all explored to the Zenith and that you know, things changed and changed in the category for, for some time. The other great part about the weekend was a very strong crowd, a very strong attendance, both at the track and also television, I understand, that both Fox and 10 were reporting very good uh, figures for uh, their viewers. Uh, this is correct? Yep, that is true. Uh, records all over the shop there. So motorsport in a very healthy position, and uh, we will talk in the coming weeks about uh, a Roy Morgan poll and brand recognition, Tony, because uh, there is some interesting findings that they released ahead of the Formula One uh, event this year comparing uh, supercars and Formula One. So we'll definitely dive into that a bit later uh, in weeks to come. Well, after the break, we'll uh, hear from Nick Ryan and the job that he and Kelly Racing had to tackle for the new year and with Nissan stepping back from being a major sponsor and involvement as the engine ran their team, Nissan Money. So Each week, join the Inside Motorsport team as they look at all the news from across Australia and around the world. Still a bit in shock. Uh, <laughs> thanks, thanks, everyone. Dissecting the sport with interviews, news and opinion. Got to put money back into the sport at the lower levels to develop the kids and bring them up. You can't rely upon good luck for Daniel Ricciardo's old man to have found a few mates to tip some money in and send him overseas. There actually needs to be a structure. Inside Motorsport broadcast on community radio and online at sportradio.com.au. The views expressed on Inside Supercars, including the panellists and guests, do not reflect the views of the network, Thunder Media or Sport Radio. Any publication or rebroadcast of the show without the expressed written permission of Thunder Media is strictly prohibited. Dick Johnson from DJR Team Fenske. And you're on Inside Supercars. Welcome to Inside Supercars. We're with Nick Ryan in a very hot truck in Adelaide and we're coping with it well. Craig Ravel, Tony Whitlock. Season starting for you. It's been a big year because it's the start of Kelly Racing again. Tell us about that transition because obviously it's a very large one for a team that's been going for how long now? Kelly Racing? Ten years. Ten, years. Ten seasons down. Ten seasons. Yeah, it, it is a big transition for us. We, we were... Um, Kelly Racing for a four-year period. So we had an ex- a very strong identity when this team was established out of Rick and Todd Kelly. And um, that, that Kelly Racing brand was just a natural evolution of their driving in the category for a number of years. We, we had that amazing opportunity to become the factory team of Nissan, and we were all in. Everything was all in on that. And what that probably did, you know, rightly or wrongly, was... Um, d- not totally dismiss, but completely step away from that Kelly brand. And, and I think we lost that identity to, to some degree for, you know, for good reasons, as we were the factory team of Nissan. But when you reflect on that now, we're, we're really having to re-establish our identity again. I think we're very lucky with Rick and Todd um, still being the, the figureheads of this business, Rick still driving and Todd really heading up the team. 
Um, that's that's been an easier transition for us, but it's you know we're going you're stepping away from this big factory relationship, and we're still the Nissan team. But um, you know that new identity, and it was important for us to evolve that identity from what we previously had. Now we had, and I'm not just talking about a logo. I mean for for how we used to do things, what we used to look like, and then certainly what that logo is to represent that. We needed to find something that was more relevant, more forward thinking, and also to look like what we are for the next ten years of of supercar racing, so to speak. Yes, but you've gone from being the team that, that is Nissan Racing to the team that races Nissans. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that, that's a, a fair jump. Um, one of the things that obviously your team had an advantage going back to what was Kelly Racing was both Rick and Todd had both created their very strong images of being racing drivers, racing drivers from the country and very successful at doing that. Yeah, certainly. They... They have had incredible careers. I mean, you sit there and you, often you're doing interviews with the guys and you're, you're talking careers of 17, 18, odd, 19 years or whatever it is of, of this category. For young, men. For young men. you're talking, you know, they're Todd's 39, Rick's 35, I think, you know, if, if I'm, I'm drawing an, an assessment of that. So the... Um, for, for those boys, they, they have had that incredible legacy and, and incredible career. Rick still continues, obviously, behind the wheel. And, and to really anchor off that and to use that, um, you know, we're very lucky as a team. Not, not too many teams can do that. It was funny. We are talking to someone today and talking about the establishment of our team. And when we did this, I started the, along with Rick and Todd. You know, Todd and I were 29. Rick was 25. You know, sit there launching a four-car team at the heart of the GFC. I don't know what level of madness we had going on at the time. If we were looking at 10-year prior versions, I turned 40 today. So you sit there going, if, if this was us at 39 years old, uh, 29 years old doing this again, would, would you have done that to that? Yes, I probably would. But you sit there going, I don't know how we did it. And, and amazing, there's, that, there's probably, I'm a lot greater than I probably should be <laughs> now than what I would be if I did a normal job, maybe I'll call it that. But I think for what we've all achieved as a group and there are plenty of knockers for us. When we first started this team, you know, people wanted us to fail, it almost felt like, and, and we were kicked a lot of times through this process. And I reckon that actually just drives you harder. You just want to succeed more. And you know, we've, we've done it tough. I think there's been some real challenges through this Nissan period. And, and you, know, you totally respect that from the fans. They want success. There, there may be underlying reasons, but they don't care. So, look, our job has always been just to try and improve what we've got. Even now, outside of the Nissan program, we're still evolving these cars. And what you'll uh, hopefully see through the year is a, a better car than we've ever had, which will hopefully make our performance at a level that we've never had. So, you know, this, this is, a, is a big opportunity for us still away from the Nissan brand under our own brand, despite racing Nissan cars, to, you know, hopefully bring that level of performance. And it's why we're here. We're in a competitive industry. We're here for success. We're not here to make up numbers. You know, there's some big teams around here, but so are we. If you look at it on paper, the scale of us owning four licenses, the manufacturing scale of what we do, we are the biggest team in this category. And, and people demand a level of success, and, and we want to deliver that. You talk about the knockers, but in hindsight, and I hope you can speak about what actually happened to you when Nissan and Kelly Racing said, we're going to do this? Basically, you had 12 months of people putting hurdles in front of you. And I'll ask you about that first because there's a second part to it as well. How do you look back at that, particularly that year, when you wanted to do some revolutionary things with engines, with cars, and supercars, the commission, were having meetings which were basically... 
putting more and more blocks in your way of achieving what you wanted to achieve. Yeah, it was very difficult. I think when you look conceptually on paper for what opportunity we had ahead of us was one of the biggest dynamic shifts of this category. We were embarking on a car of the future, but we were bringing in a new manufacturer. The duopoly of Holden and Ford forever and a day own this category. And for Nissan to have the... I'll call it the guts to, to come in and take that competition on and back us to do it was something we couldn't have been more proud to undertake. Now, as we got into that program, we, you know, we didn't envisage the roadblocks. We didn't envisage the challenges. And really, you can't until you start designing that product and understanding, applying that craft into this sport and what the regulations and restrictions are. It was a very, very different platform than this sport had seen before. And, and really, that that no one had a good enough handle on it to help and accept that. So, you know, what the, the path that we set forward on um, was made easier for Mercedes and then I would like to think a lot easier again for the Volvo team coming in because we got smashed. We, we were racing with not just one but two hands behind our back for a long period of time. And, you know, I, I take my hat off to, to the Nissan team. We, re, we renewed that agreement twice through the term for, for when we were with them. And, you know, they were... They were in this game for success. Nissan's been in this sport before, as we all know, and they had a lot of success. So they weren't in here to make up numbers as well. But, you know, I I take my hat off to the Nissan team. They have been unbelievably supportive through this entire journey. Don't get me wrong. Of course, they would have liked more success, and they said that publicly. But at the same time, I think the fact that they supported us through what we had, and and once we got into it, there was no turning back. You know, what what could we do? We we were there to go racing. We were there to um, continually fight the fight to to try and get where we were. And, you know, for, for the technical guys and for Todd specifically around that commission trying to understanding firsthand the, t- the pressures and the challenges that we were experiencing, the pressures we were getting on the, you know, from the business side of things versus the fan side of things versus the roadblocks that we were experiencing was, it was heartbreaking. You know, you, you, you just, you, you felt like it was never going to get to an end. And, you know, when we got through the one hurdle, then there'll be another five that we had to try and jump through. But, you know, which weren't there at the start. No. So how did you feel when, most of the things you wanted to adopt engine-wise were then green-lit for Mercedes and eventually Volvo when you had just spent 12 months having to do you know, a, a very archaic style of engine compared to what you were hoping to bring Nissan in with. Yeah, it's very hard. Very hard to watch. You had the Volvo team come out here in Adelaide. We were sitting here, what was it, four or five years ago? Five years ago, and they came out. And remember, Scotty, do you won? You won or second or whatever? Second. second which was... Like, like, like winning the championship for your first, and why couldn't that have been us? And out in this, and, and again, you totally respect it. The fans don't care; they don't care about all the fighting and everything else that's going on behind the scenes. They just care about the show. And God bless Volvo; were able to put on a show and put in, in Gary Rogers Motorsport, put in an incredible performance. We, we were nowhere at that point in time. We were still languishing behind and sadly making up numbers and it was it, it was heartbreaking and explaining to other stakeholders and people why they were there and we were still where we were and the problem was we had started on this path and gone so far down this path you can't just tear up your millions of dollars and go okay we'll just start again and have another crack in a different direction it doesn't work like that and you know I, i'm pleased to say that we've got somewhere with this in the end but it shouldn't have been that hard I can only think of looking at you, first of all, and talking about your 10 years and you and Todd discussing things. A boy's charm and enthusiasm works very well, and you've got it still, so don't feel that you old man country yet, okay? That's first off. The second thing is I think very much of, and I remember I, I, I certainly wasn't able to get in the 
in the inside of Kelly Racing or Nissan Motorsport. But I certainly remember I was there when the engine shop was first shown, and I was very glad I was. And and I was, you know, I mean, me talking about being proud, I've got no part in this. But the, one of the things is that that line that I think of is things that don't kill us make us stronger. And that must have been a driving force for you. Yeah, there was no way we were backing out of this program. I mean, we had full support from Nissan. We had full support. You know, the, I, I think we, you know, commercially we work incredibly hard with our partners. And the, and the way we work this, and it's the way everyone does to a degree, but you, your success really needs to be your icing on the cake. If, if your partnerships are built on the premise of success, none of us are going to have sponsors. There will be a couple of teams that are, are really able to fundamentally support that. But the journey that our partners went on, and we've, never, we've always been transparent. We've never sold the dream because we've, we've been very clear with where our performance lies. And, and I think that's de- developed a high level of respect and friendships, lifelong partnerships that we've had. You know, we've had a lot of partners here that have been since we opened the doors. And, and they understand and they accept and, and they've ridden that journey. But... Once we got into this and there was no backing out of it, we were more determined than ever to find a way to get there. And I think, um, you know, Michael's win at Darwin was a big one. Sure, we had the the Winton win, but, um, you know, a lot of people took the shine off that for us. Um, We still claim there was nothing to that, but people took that shine off us. So Michael's win at Winton, but then Rick's won. Sorry, Michael's win at Darwin, but Rick's win at Winton was honestly like we had won Bathurst. You know, just for Rick after a, a hiatus, he'd had, you know, some podiums and some strong performances. He had a very good year last year, I think, from where he'd come from in the previous year. But that that felt like something truly special. And, you know, the the emotions of the team in those instances, we've had a lot of people here, you know, you recognise the faces, you know them all that have been here for the 10 years, but even some that are, that are you know, five-plus years in this that have burned the midnight oil, worked at, at unbelievable hours for us to be able to get to to where we are at this point and you know we are extremely proud of that it may not impede in everyone else's terms for what success looks like to them um they may be saying that just by the nature of how many wins you have on the board but that's not for us our our success when we knew the challenges was each incremental bit of success and performance that we're able to achieve through you know getting next level of engine development and things too we we have a really competitive engine now and we've got a really competitive car now we've got some work to do this weekend but it's around setup you know we're not talking about the fundamental differences between us and the other cars out there so we're we're finally getting to a point after all these years where we should have a car that's getting more competitive it's not all the way there to where some of these other cars are but it's certainly getting very close and you know, Todd, um, Nicolila, Scott Sinclair, all the engine guys, all the, um, the design guys, all the development guys, manufacturing guys, you know, for, for what they've done to get to this point and still stay on this journey with us, uh, you know, when we do have those little wins, it's, it's, it means everything to us. More with Nick Ryan after the break. Each week, join the Inside Motorsport team as they look at all the news from across Australia and around the world. Yeah, I mean, it, it means a lot. You know, through the years, a lot of reference this race is one of our majors. 600 miles around here is no easy task. Uh, we were able to beat the two levels to the boys and, uh, and meet Anthony Bigley in the final, which uh, we were able to uh, um, take the win off him. So, uh, yeah, it was a great weekend for the uh, Rapsdale family. Inside Motorsport broadcast on community radio and online at sportradio.com.au. Join in the conversation. Post your thoughts on our Sport Radio Facebook page. Hi, I'm Macaulay Jones I'm from the Cool Drive Racing Team, and you're listening to Inside Supercars. We continue our chat now with Rick Ryan. One of the other challenges you had this year, apart from the rebranding, was potentially two new drivers. As it turned out, Andre was able to return and you were able to get Plus Fitness back on board. So that meant that one of those challenges for the year was overcome. 
and then you got Gary Jacobson. Now, tell us about that sort of part of the program. Yeah, we were um, we were pretty transparent with people through this. It wasn't necessarily what people wanted to hear. Um, there was a big change for us in moving away from this Nissan program, and that was a real financial impact to our business. Now, when you, you talk at the realms of this sport, where you're you know every bit of seventy percent of your revenue base is is derived from commercial sponsorship, so. We needed to make sure from the change that occurred with Nissan that our business was financially secure. If you go into a season that you're underdone, it's absolute detriment of your performance. And we needed to make sure that we were commercially sound going into the future. And, and I think over, you know, you'd hopefully agree that over the 10 years, we've done pretty well commercially. We've had a lot of amazing brands and, and long-standing brands in our team. And we just needed to make sure that the changes that occurred with um, the, the change in funding with Nissan and, and, you know, the branding and things that reflect on those cars from Nissan aren't, you know, a direct correlation to um, being able to derive that investment out in the market. So we, we sort of had to look at our entire model and how we could get the money in the door because if we are going to be competitive against, you know, the league teams of today, your Penske's, your Triple Eights, um, you know, even seeing spates of Erebus and Co that are out there, it costs money. So... Before we made those decisions around what the, the driver lineup looked, we needed to make sure we were going to be financially secure because otherwise our performance wouldn't be there. You could have great drivers and, and terrible cars. So as we, as we looked into this year, it took longer than we wanted to, but it took longer because of the decisions that we were having to make. And we were totally transparent with our drivers, be that Caruso, be that Andre that was there. Um, we were always very keen on bringing Gary into the program. We, he out of, came out of the Tickford program last year. He was with Matt White Racing in 2018 in our Nissans. And it was a, it's a transition that we were very keen on making. And, and we were able to put the commercial package around him and able to secure that. And then as that came late in the piece to, to securing Andre, look, we were some time before we announced it, um, all those details were pretty secure. Um, you've just got to make sure it's the right time to make those announcements for certain things around commercial sponsorship and the like. But fundamentally, back to the to the start of, of my point, um, being financially viable is, is critically important. You know, just to relate it to a football team, an AFL team, 40% of their revenue is derived from membership. We don't have that luxury. It is mainly all sponsorship. So um, if, if we want to be here tomorrow and if we want to be here racing into 2020, if we want to be here going into new manufacturer programs and things. We've got to get today right. And that meant making sure that all those aspects were, were in line. With two drivers like Craig Lowndes and Garth Tander at different times coming out, out of racing, coming out of contract, did you have conversations with both those guys? Or is it remiss if you didn't? No. Um, look, usually in every example, you talk to everyone. And that's, that's not out of disrespect for any of your uh, current lineup. It's just you have to be aware of what the market's doing at every single point in time. And that's just for your own analysis. It, you know, that's just doing good due diligence on where your market exists. I think pretty early with uh, the example with Craig, you know, it was fairly definitive that, that Craig was, he was in his um, co-driving program. And to be fair, when we, uh, we became aware with Garth, I think the next day his, his announcement was made. And we, we found out very quickly that Craig, what Craig, uh, sorry, what um, Garth was doing, going up to, uh, to drive with those guys as well. So we, of, of course, we, ex- we explored that and looked at it and who knows what that could have been, you know, whether that was at that point in time, it could have been a full-time opportunity, it could have been a co-driver opportunity, it could have been anything with the likes of a Garth Tander or Craig Lowndes. But um, we, you know, quick, very quickly became aware that their plans were secure. Making a decision, as Matt White did, to move from Tickford forwards 
to your Nissans obviously came at an opportune time for him and for you because they got a support that they hadn't had before at level of. Yeah, and, and that's been unbelievably good for us. I think when you look at um, most lead teams now have a relationship with a Super 2 team and there comes with that a host of advantages, you know, whether it's your co-drivers, whether it's the testing principle, whether that's supply of equipment to the support categories. For so many reasons, that relationship works for us, even visually. Matt does an incredible job. You look at his cars, they're always towards the front. Um, it's an unbelievable unbelievable stepping stone for Gary Jacobson, you know, having a solid year in Super 2 up the front, stepping in here, doing a great job, main series. So... That's, that's been a, a terrific relationship. Matt's a great guy. He gets the game. It works well. We support him as much as we can. And, um, you know, for, for as long as we're with the Nissan program and who knows where the future goes, you know, may it continue. Have you got a... I mean, you're obviously racing these four cars in 2019. There'll be two or three in the Super 2s? Three in the Super 2s. Three in the Super 2s. So um, have, is your program now... Have you got a worked out plan to the end of 2020? Um, look, there's no, there's no mistaking um, that our intention is uh, in the future around new manufacturers, and that's it's almost a frivolous comment in in, in one respect because it's not that easy. Um, you know, this sport needs new manufacturers, um, and we're not a customer. We're we're not going to be a customer to the Holden teams or um, to the Mustang teams for where we're at. We're a manufacturing-based team and our whole business model is built on that principle and the point for running four cars is the scale that we get over doing that and to switch to a customer base without that manufacturing capability, it doesn't make sense for us in this category. After the break, our final thoughts for this week's Inside Supercars. Each week, join the Inside Motorsport team as they look at all the news from across Australia and around the world. This year in Formula 3, I think it's a fantastic environment for me to be doing that. However, I believe for myself, uh, a sustainable career in tin tops such as Fiat Supercars in Australia is where I see myself. Second crack at the Australian time since we've been back and we're unlucky the first time that we end up with a win there at Freeway City uh, two weeks ago. Inside Motorsport broadcast on community radio and online at sportradio.com.au. Join in the conversation, post your thoughts on our Facebook page and to ask a question, email insiders at sportradio.com.au. Welcome to Inside Supercars. This is Ryan Story from DJR Team Penske. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to Inside Supercars. One of the very sad things that was uh, leading into this year's Australian Grand Prix was the death of Charlie Whiting, a long-time Formula One man back to the 1980s and very sadly missed by a lot of people. It was very sad for him and the people involved around him. It was terrific news for a young Michael Massey. Well, young, he's 39. Young in this game, of course, because uh, there are a lot of old hands at the wheel in uh, many places in the business of motor racing. But um, we had the chance to speak to a number of the people who've known him a long time. I caught up with Adrian Burgess, Tim Edwards and Peter Vale, probably who have collectively got sort of over 50 years involvement in Formula One. All of them gave us their views on Charlie Whiting and his death. I'm with Adrian Burgess, Technical Director and Operations Director. Head of Motorsport. Head of Motorsport for Supercars. It's uh, Sunday afternoon, we've finished the final supercar race here. 
And I just wanted to catch up with him because he was in Formula One for quite some time and Charlie Whiting obviously was not only somebody he worked with but a friend as well. Can you tell me something about him, please? Oh, look, I had known Charlie probably... Well, my maths is going to fail me, ain't it? Nearly 30 years. Yeah. Um, just an incredible guy, really uh, warm and... Um, Helpful, you know. You never, you know. You obviously acknowledged his position, and you know when you were up there, being, uh, you know, under the under the sort of steward's eye because you'd done something wrong, and you, you know, you knew you were in for a, a hard discussion, and you respected what he said. But equally, outside of work and outside of the the, you know, the working relationship we all have here, he was such a he was a very warm, kind, you know, generous person with his time. You know, he was you could have a beer with him and, and talk to him like he was one of your schoolmates. You know, that you've been to school with. He was a Really, really approachable. Um, yeah, just a fun. I really not just a good human being. You know, deep down, good guy. One of his uh, strengths wasn't because he'd been a competitor for, for quite some time at the top end. Yeah, he understood what but you he, needed. He'd been a bit like myself. You know, he'd been a mechanic. You know, he'd been lying, lying on his back. You know, fixing race cars and you know, and then worked his way through the system. And he, he understood what everyone was going through. He understood the issues or the you know the. The, the things that affect the mechanics. You know, he understood what engineers were thinking. He'd been a team manager, so he understood what team managers would think. So he had a, this ability to, you know, put the right um, thought process and the, give the right tolerances to the right little areas. If whatever debate you were on, you know, he understood what people's roles were and he understood the sport, you know, really from top to bottom. And um, and he was obviously very well qualified to make any judgment on that. And that's really why I think, uh, you know, when I was up there working with him. Again, in 2005 and six, in, in, in the technical working group, you, you know, if he said something, you you didn't really question it. You, you knew he was authorised and qualified to to give his opinion, and you, you know, very rarely did you ever challenge it. You didn't because you knew it came from sound reasoning and a logical approach. He was just he was a down to earth, yeah, logical thinker, and yeah, good good, good bloke, yeah. There's a line there about the show must go on, and, uh, and of course, obviously, it's being one of the largest sporting events in the world at this moment, and as every Grand Prix is. And someone had to step up, and it happens to be someone who's an Australian, um, someone you've worked with, Michael Massey. Yeah, I mean, look, it's uh, under such terrible circumstances, it's a fantastic opportunity for Michael, and he's certainly ready for it. And his personality, the way he goes about his racing, the way he deals with people, uh, the way he, his knowledge of the rule book and, and the technical side and the stewardship side is he's the perfect fit. He'll do a fantastic job there. He's um, got a. Got a They're incredibly large shoes to, to fill, but if anyone's capable, it's definitely Michael. So yeah, I look forward to seeing him develop as a person over the years to come. And I, I think it's something everybody in Australian motors will call. It's something that everybody here should be proud of. You know, he's a, he's a product of our system, well, the Australian system. So it's, I think it's a testament to the work that Tim and, and Eugene and everyone at Camps has done in that program. And Michael's, you couldn't, you couldn't wish it on a nicer guy. So. Well, thank you very much, Adrian Burgess. It's uh, wonderful to hear about. And, uh, yeah, great loss for the sport, but good to know it's going to carry on.
Yeah, Joe must go up. Tim Edwards, the head of Tickford Racing, and just talking about a, a prior life of his. And a shock this week on uh, Wednesday, it came through that Charlie Whiting died. You obviously knew the man. Yeah, I know Charlie very well, obviously, from my time in, uh, in Formula One and, you know, from the period where I was team manager of Jordan, I, you know, interacted with Charlie quite regularly. But also my wife, Trudy, was... Um, she was very friendly with Charlie, so on many occasions we uh, we would go out and have the Charlie Whiting, Herbie Blash um, wine nights because they were real connoisseurs of wine. And uh, 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 so yeah, I mean, huge loss to the sport. I mean, um, you started working in Formula One, or you went to the UK when? Uh, in '98, beginning of '98, um, and then started working in Formula One at the beginning of '90. One when Eddie debuted the beautiful Seven Up Jordans, right, and uh, very quickly became very competitive. Yeah, I mean it was a great first year to us, and you know, debuted some, a few drivers that were new to the sport, including Michael Schumacher, who, who cut his first laps in a Formula One car um, uh, for us at Jordan. So um, yeah, I mean it's the start of a very long period. You know, I worked there until the end of uh, 2004, and I uh, left about a month before the Russians moved in, and it became Midland F1. Oh. Now, um, in all your dealings with Charlie, I mean, there'll obviously be pre-event, post-event meetings. He'd be giving laying down the law. He was a straight shooter. Oh, absolutely. I mean, a lot of people don't realise that you know he's almost the heart of Formula One. You know, it's you know, it's not. He's never been the typical just race director that you know, and not saying anything bad about race directors, but that was just a small part of what he did. Might have been his title, but. You know, you could be sitting in Monaco having a technical workshop, you know, all the team managers and Charlie Whiting trying to work out what the technical and sporting rules might be for the next season. Uh, or you could be involved in a whole host of other things. You know, he's really the... He's been the central point of, of Formula One for so many years. It's, you know, I said to somebody earlier today, you know, it'll be three or four people have to replace him because, you know, he's such a key role in the sport and on and so many different areas of the sport, not just the... The part that you, the public face of it, which is him sitting in race control or being the the, the starter of the race. Um, and of course, there was no pre-warning. He hadn't shown his, you know, a relatively young man at 66. Oh, I, look, I, I haven't spoken to Charlie for a while, but yeah, I think it's just uh, it's just been one of those unfortunate things. Whether it was the flight over, you know, was the cause, you know, don't know. But yeah, certainly a huge shock to everybody. Um, you know, including my wife, who was very close to Charlie. All right. Well, thanks for your time, Tim Edwards of Tickford Racing, and uh, yes, we commiserate as well. I first knew of Charlie Whiting back when he was a mechanic, and following him back in the eighties, sort of thing. So uh, certainly knew of him well, and never had any contact with him, but certainly respected what he did. So. Oh, fantastic bloke! Absolutely fantastic bloke. Peter Vale, who is a long-time member of the Formula One paddock, and I just want to talk to him about Charlie Whiting's. Very sudden death on uh, Wednesday this week. How long were you in Formula One, Peter? I did Formula One for 24 years. 24 years. The teams yeah. you were with? Uh, Lotus, McLaren, Williams and then Manor. Right. It's a fair spread there. Yeah, and I did a fair few number of jobs along the way as well, starting oh. off as a mechanic um, and then chief mechanic and then team manager and all sorts of bits and pieces along the way. Now, I imagine that in that role for so long that you would have had many occasions where you'd be asking Charlie or saying, giving your point of view or... Yeah, most dealings I had with Charlie was when I was a team manager um, and I was new to the team manager fraternity and I always found Charlie very helpful um, 
very understanding and nothing was ever too much trouble. Um, I know, looking at a lot of the comments on social media, everybody's got a good word to say about Charlie, and it might be a bit cliche, but really and truly, he was a true gentleman of the sport, and he was he was a person that when you were around, you, you were always happy to be around him, because he was never negative or anything else, and, uh, and Charlie, yeah, he's a true gentleman of the sport, he would be sadly missed. I don't want to be denigrating of anybody, but one thing that it's almost opposite European the way in which he operated. You know, there's a certain amount within the FIA that almost to make things too hard, whereas there's a method by which you want to get things done. I mean, he wanted to keep your cars on track. Yeah, I think Charlie had a really difficult job, um, probably more so a few years ago than, than recently. Um, but he always managed to find that the balance between the teams, uh, the team owners, uh, the people he was dealing with, and also the people who were running the sport. And he was the liaison up and down, if you like, between the two, you know, the, 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 the two different people. Um, and he did that job very well. And he pacified aggressive people, and he looked after people who needed to be looked after. And as I said, I, I never saw him angry. But he was always someone you could go and talk to about anything and he would give you the time of day no matter who you were. If you're a mechanic or if you're a team owner, he'd give you the same amount of time. It really didn't matter. Now, is this your third year here or second? This is my second year. Yeah. So last year was a full year. I did a couple of races before that, so this yeah. is my second second year. Taking over a man who had actually carved his own niche well in Chris Clark. Yeah, yep, taking over from Clark here. Got Clark to blame for being out here now, but... <laughs> I also thank him very much for giving me the opportunity. Yeah, yeah, he did the ring of friend, you know, sort of Yeah, <laughs> yes. I don't think he was allowed to leave until he found a replacement, so he, <laughs> he tried pretty hard. Now, one of the consequences of the fact of uh, Charlie Whiting's surmise is that a young man called Michael Massey has stepped up, and you would have known Michael in that time you've been here. Yeah, I, I, I had some dealings with Michael last year after a few things we did and once again Michael was a was a person that you could go and talk to about things um, and in the team representative meeting here Michael was a person we dealt with last year yeah I, I'm very pleased I've known Michael since he uh, was cleaning wheels on Formula 3 cars yeah. with a rag and water and that was he was trusted with yeah. and I'm delighted because he's a very young man still for the job one that uh, I was amazed to discover that Charlie in fact was younger than I am which there's always that wake-up call. Yeah. But um, you'd be pleased to have somebody like Michael in this job. I don't know who they're going to get to replace um, Charlie. I don't know if it's going Long to be a one-person or two-person job. But for this, uh, this weekend, yeah, Michael's got some really big shoes to fill. And uh, he's capable of doing it yeah. um, this weekend. Um, as far as running the event, once you get to an event, if you've got all the, paper, if you've got all the, if you've got all the prep done beforehand... It's not too bad. But then once you get back and you're trying to prep for the next event, that's when you really need to know what you're supposed to be doing and who you're supposed to be calling and everything else. He'd already just recently been appointed, this Michael Massey, to the job of a race director for Formula 2 and Formula 3. Yeah. So, you know, he's obviously considered, you know... Presumably it was a grooming yeah. know, a grooming position for him and that's why I think most of the people in the, in the Formula 1 fraternity may think... And uh, may feel so. Yes, uh, him being here this weekend, he was a natural progression to to fill in for the weekend. After that, I haven't got, yeah. and I haven't heard what's going to happen. So I, I'd be speculating and probably wrong. And uh, I imagine you're enjoying this year. We're seeing some good results from the VJR cars. Um, we've got a bit of speed this year, which is great to see. And um, but it, it is so close. 
um, in this in this category. So trying to keep up the pointy end is going to be our aim. Um, yeah, yesterday we were the first of the four door runners, so that was good. Um, we're we're the two quickest four door runners on the grid today. But how the race is going to pan out, we're just going to, have to wait and see. Another big year of uh, motor racing has started. We've had two wonderful events. Craig, um, I imagine that you'll be looking forward to uh, having a look, see at... Uh, you, did you go through and have a look at all the races from uh, Albert Park? I have. I've seen all the races, all the shenanigans, and, uh, well, we certainly have uh, talked about that at the top of the show. Um, coming up in the coming weeks, I already flagged one thing we'll talk about, which was that Roy Morgan um, brand recognition poll. But in coming weeks, Tony, I'm going to propo- uh, propose I'm going to pose a question to you. Not propose a question, propose. I'm going to pose a question to you. That um, do supercars... No, wrong way around. Does the Australian Grand Prix need supercars? Because, as I said uh, last week, I don't find these short races interesting and I don't think it's a particularly great spectacle for supercars. Um, So the question is, the crowds of an evening were quite sparse. The race, obviously, before the Formula One event was a massive crowd, but uh, generally they were racing in front of nobody by comparison to the crowds during the... uh, the Formula One cars on track. So does the Australian Grand Prix need supercars? That'll be an interesting question because it's so multifaceted and we won't delve into it too far now, Tony. Indeed, and in fact there is that interesting scenario because there have certainly been times in the last 24 years that the AGP needed supercars because at times there has been dwindling, dwindling crowds. Interesting, I've seen uh, some of the television... I find it very sad that Channel 10 are trivialising the Grand Prix to such an extent. It's, uh, it's not about uh, great motor racing, it's just an event. Just another one of Melbourne's sporting events. Um, and, and I agree with you about many parts of the weekend, but we'll get back to motor racing with supercars and get back to some great racing. You know that we have potentially a, a great series this year with a lot of terrific combinations of drivers, crews, and cars. So let's look forward to in the future weeks as we get ready for another thrilling uh, week of motor racing coming up on Inside Supercars. Good night from me. And good night from him. Inside Supercars is produced by Thunder Media. Tune in next week for more at sportradio.com.au or lock in the podcast on your iTunes or mobile device. Search Inside Supercars.